year, went on to lead our church as a general superintendent. You have served the church so faithfully, Pastor Bond, that's what we'll call you here today. And I am so delighted to get to introduce you as we welcome you to San Diego First Church as you open the word to us. Come on up, Dr. Bond. Pastor Bond. Good morning, everyone. I greet you in the name of that great and glorious man on the right hand of God the Father, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And I don't know about you, but I've sensed his sacred nearness here this morning. I love the music, but in the very area I want to talk about a little bit. And I love being here. Sixteen years we were on this campus, and... uh, as Sally and I, my wife and I, reflect on that, where's Sally? You ought to stand up so they can see my, my wife. Sally, where are you? There she is over here. Yep. We celebrated 60 years together in August. So it's been a long and wonderful life. Yep. Sally would say these are the funnest years we lived, the 16 we were here on this campus. I would probably say they were the most fulfilling. Absolutely loved being on the campus, loved the faculty, loved being around the students. Um, When we had chapel, it it was not in this magnificent building when I became president. We had chapel in the gymnasium, and it was not easy. We survived that, eventually built this marvelous facility here, which uh, has been serving so effectively the church as well as the college over the years, and so privileged to be here this morning. I can remember some wonderful moments in chapel. If I had it to do all over again, the message I'm going to preach to you this morning, I very well might have preached again and again and again in chapel, because it's a, it's a message that has kind of been grooved into my very being over these past little more than eight decades. I have a very firm conviction that anyone at any stage of life who has had an an authentic encounter with Jesus Christ can never be the same again. I know that because in Pampa, Texas, the little town where I grew up, town of 20,000, on a Sunday morning, I followed my oldest brother, Bill, I have two older brothers, to an altar of prayer. Uh, He was kind of my hero, five years older than I. I followed Bill to the altar. I'm not sure why he went, other than he probably was repenting of his first attempt to kill our middle brother. (laughs) Any of you have three boys, family of three brothers? Um, My Sunday school teacher, who was my pastor's wife, knelt beside me that morning and said, Jimmy, why don't you just invite Jesus to come into your life? I had not a clue it was the most wonderful thing a a person could ever do in this world to invite Jesus into their life. So I did, and he came into my life. Now, I'm convinced that Jesus spoke to me, not audibly, of course. It was a kind of gentle urging. It was an inner light showing the way. 
a very sweet, tender, continuous nudging within me to want to do the right. It's what the theologians call prevenient grace, the grace that goes before the moment of initial salvation. God is at work in every human heart. What are there, almost 8 billion of us across the face of this earth today? He's at work in every human heart through his prevenient grace, drawing people to himself. So following that nudging, I marvel at it when I think about it, a five-year-old child entering into a personal, vital, living relationship with God and Jesus Christ. Amazing. Incidentally, I've read recently that 80% of the people in this country who identify, self-identify as Christians became believers before the age of 18. So the message to the church is the time to reach people with this glorious news of Christ is when they're young. And I know you're working at that right here and certainly there's a beautiful sense of this on, on the, this campus and the life, the students that are here as well as Dr. Brower and all the others. I, I believe with all my heart I entered into a saving relationship with Jesus at the age of five. I was not saved from this horrible past. <laughs> I didn't even know what sin was. But I was saved from what might have been a very dissolute life, living my life without regard to God or anyone else, following my own selfish desires. What a wreck I could have been. But more important is what I was saved to. I was saved to an absolutely incredible life that Jesus had enabled me to live. Looking back over the years, I marvel. I can't believe we've been where we've been, done what we've done, and it's all because of Jesus. So he took me very tenderly by the hand and said, hey, come on and just follow me. So I began, I began following him in my, my fumbling, faltering, adolescent kind of way. And sometimes I was very close in my following, sometimes at distance, sometimes ever so briefly, I was lured out of the way by our subtle, sinister enemy. When I fell, he was always there. I fell right into his arms, and he caught me and picked me up and got me on my feet and said, come on, just get a little closer and keep following. So I did across the years. Yesterday, I was with the athletes. I told them about what happened in the springtime of my 15th year. I loved basketball. Fell in love with basketball as a kid. So spent a lot of time playing basketball, but also fairly devout as a young guy. I, I, Mom and Dad prayed around the, 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 the couch in the living room with us every night, and, and often I would kneel by my bedside and pray myself. One night, he came to me and said, Jim, I want the basketball. And I said, please, not the basketball. He said, yes, I want the basketball. And I said, Lord, not the basketball. That's my life. And he said, I know. And I want to be your life. So night after night, I, I would kneel and pray. And as big as life between me and God, there came the basketball. One evening service in our church. I was sitting over here on this side. Someone was preaching or singing. I, I don't know. I was talking to the Lord over there and looked up into his face and said, hey, <laughs> it's okay. 
you can have the basketball because I want you more than I want anything else in all this world. And suddenly, there was this, this incredible sense of presence. The Holy Spirit came beautifully into my life. I had known him as Savior. He wanted to be more than just Savior. He wanted to be Lord of my life. That's not unique to me. That happens to everyone who's a serious-minded follower of Jesus. You begin to run into hard words, like Matthew 16, 24. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Wow. What does that mean, to deny yourself? Well, what was going on within me was this inclination to want to rule my own life. And Jesus said, that's in conflict with the Holy Spirit that's in work in your life because I want to rule your life. I'm the sovereign God of the universe. I want to be sovereign to you more than just Savior. I want to be sovereign. I want to be Lord. A few days later, after I made that decision, he came to me and said, hey, remember the basketball? You bet I do. Take the basketball. Play basketball. Enjoy it. I didn't come to deprive you of life and fun. Enjoy basketball, but don't let it get on the throne anymore and become your highest reason for being because that's the place that I'm going to occupy as the Lord of your life. Wow. So he didn't want the basketball. That basketball represented kind of the last stronghold, the last bastion, if you will, of self-rule. And I yielded to him totally. And to use a word from Ray Dunning, he became the dominant partner in the relationship. The dominant partner in the relationship. He became my Lord. So across the years I've lived in that relationship and I've come to believe that in, in the relationship, the experiences one have are just part of the journey. People come to a dramatic conversion, that, that's entering into the relationship, something I didn't have, that dramatic conversion. And you move on now walking with him, you're going to encounter the hard sayings where he says, I want to be the Lord of your life. So the important thing is not the relation, the, uh, the experiences so much as the relationship. Following him, walking in all the light, obeying him. That's what holiness is all about, living our lives totally yielded to God and Jesus Christ. And that's what it is to me. I, I reflect on this over the years. I preached from this chapel uh, platform many times. When I first came, I think I preached once a month. Finally, I decided maybe, uh, maybe a couple of times each semester would be enough. I didn't put it up for student vote. I just made my own decision about that. And I, I love preaching with, to the students and being with the students in that context. This is sort of a message I, I wish I'd preached then, again and again and again. Not this exact message, but in this context. Because here's my golden verse at this point in my life. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. Do you know it? For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
That, that verse has really been deeply embedded in my life over the years, never has been more deeply embedded than this very moment. For me to live is Christ. And so I've come to believe that this relationship we talk about, I'm talking about this morning, it's all about Jesus. All about Jesus. It's about living in Jesus, living for Jesus, and living like Jesus. That's what holiness is all about, folks. It gets lost in a lot of the nomenclature and the language that we use. But, but I'm simple. I like simple. And I don't think you can say holiness any more simply than it is living like Jesus Christ. It's Christ-likeness. And I think that probably is our best term to describe what holiness is all about in this context we live in today with the... Uh, your generation, some of you are younger, some of you are my age, not very many. That was the older crowd this morning I talked to. <laughs> but the relationship is all about Jesus Christ. I, uh, I think it's the best definition of holiness in a human being that we have. It's living in him, living through him, and living like him. This relationship is not about living a perfect life. Some of us of my generation... Um, were influenced strongly by John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, and his take on, on Christian holiness, biblical holiness. He hung everything under the umbrella of Christian perfection. Um, near the end of his life, he said to his brother Charles, shall we go on asserting perfection, or shall we quietly let it drop? He said, we really must do one or the other, and I apprehend the sooner the, sooner the better. Well, he continued throughout his life to talk about Christian perfection. It's a biblical thing. You have to deal with perfection. Paul used the term. Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, said, be perfect. So that's another subject I don't have time to deal with this morning. But uh, the relationship is not about perfectionism. I wrestled with that because I somehow believed I could, I could live a moral life that was perfect. So he came to me and said, hey, buddy, Relax, relax, you're never going to be perfect. I'm the only perfect one in this relationship. So you keep your eyes on me. I'm going to give you the model of how I want you to live. Keep following me, and I will keep doing my work of grace in your life, perfecting you. I'm a person God is making like a statue God is shaping. God is molding me, correcting God's intent on my perfection. He's intent on shaping me more and more and more into his own image. Paul said it beautifully. We are, he said in the, cha the third chapter of 2 Corinthians, we are with unveiled faces reflecting the Lord's glory and we are being transformed. We're being changed. We're being metamorphosed into what? Into his likeness. And that with ever increasing growth. That's his desire for you and me to shape us more and more into the very image of himself expressed so beautifully in Jesus Christ. Um, the relationship is not about uh, performance by rules and regulations. Now, my generation of Nazarenes know that in those early days, there were certain prohibitions, and if you measured up to those prohibitions, you were walking, you were walking in holiness. You, know? Just, you don't do this, you don't do that. Well, 
We have a lot of people that have carried a lot of baggage over the years because of that. As I said in the earlier service, I attend a church. We're members of a church in, uh, in Sun City, Arizona that's comprised of our age group. And it's a blowing and going church. We're surrounded by people in our age group. And uh, God's doing some remarkable things there. But I say to those people who are still carrying that baggage, get over it. Get over it. My goodness, you're, you don't have much longer to live. So get over this thing and begin to walk positively and follow closely after Jesus. Commit it to him. He can, he can wonderfully heal you of all the, uh, all the, the uh, terrible memories that stir in your mind. He, can, he, can't, he will not take the memories away, but all the, uh, the tremendous emotional baggage you carry from it, he can, he can heal you that emotion. So, Jesus said to me one day, and he said, there are a lot of things in this world that you, you have to say no to, and you've got to learn how to say no and make it stick. But evil is, though so apparent and, and abundant in our world today, it's not immediately recognizable. Not so simple that we can reduce it all to do's and don'ts. So he said, out there in this world that I'm going to thrust you into, I'm going to teach you daily how to make value judgments. Value judgments between good and evil, between good and half good, between good and great. And I want you to make the great decisions, the greatest moral decisions you can if you want to, beautiful music this morning, if you, if you want to live with a pure heart <laughs> and you want to be a holy person. I can keep you from that through my grace. So it's not about sinless perfection. John Wesley was accused often of believing in sinless perfection, and he rejected that. He said, I don't believe in sinless perfection. I discourage all of my preachers from using that term. But nonetheless, I, I lived in my earlier period of walking with Jesus under that impression, that concept of living in sinless perfection kind of held me captive for many years. Single act of sin would bring defeat to me. And so the relationship then kind of degenerated, if you will, into a spiritual game where if you land on the wrong square, you've got to go all the way back to the beginning and start all over again. No, no, no. In my frustration, Jesus spoke to me and said very simply, I want you to go read 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Do you know it? If you don't know it, you ought to commit it to memory. Get it into your mind. Get it into your heart. It's kind of like a great Gibraltar you can anchor the relationship to. He said, John, an older guy, when he wrote it, I write this unto you so that you sin not. That is God's message to, to, to people in every generation. Sin not. We have to come to grips with that. And many definitions of sin, and I could spend a lot of time talking about that this morning. Here's the good thing. He said, sin not. Someone said sin's on, it's like a train wreck. It's not on the schedule. And if God commands it, his commands are his enablings, he can enable us to live free of sin. I believe that. And I believe that's biblical. But here's the good word. Sin not, but if anybody does sin. Wow. If anybody does sin. That's not the if 
of probability, that's the if of possibility. It may happen. If anybody does sin, we have one on the right hand of the Father who is our defense, who is our, our attorney, who's pleading our case, and we can go to him immediately. And here's, here's the, 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 the position that I've taken on that all across these years. You go immediately the moment the Holy Spirit convicts you that you've sinned, and you look into the face of God, and you confess that sin, you forsake that sin, you renounce that sin, you try to learn a lesson so that sin does not recur in your life, and by faith you believe you are forgiven, and you pick up at that point and you move on. Hallelujah. Did anybody say that? I guess that was just me thinking that. <laughs> Here's the point. You don't have to go back to square one and start all over again. You're in a relationship of one who loves you and cares about you and wants to help you. So he's there to assist and enable you to live a holy life in this kind of a world. The relationship has to be cultured every day, obviously. Um, boy, that's a bigger clock than you have over there, and I'm watching that clock back there, Dean. <laughs> I, when I was elected general officer in the Church of the Nazarene, I... I said, Lord, give me a message for the church, and he did. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Beautiful little verse where Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. Don't get drunk with wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. That little word, be filled, that's not entirely correct translation because that, that verb is in the present continuous tense. It doesn't say be filled, but it says be being filled. It's continual, being filled every day in the good times and the bad. When you stumble and fall in your weakness and when things are going wonderfully well, in the midst of it all, be being filled with God's Spirit. That's his intention for every one of us because it is that filling that alone can help us live Christ-like in this world. The relationship is built on trust. I can trust him completely. I know that. And I think increasingly he's come to the place where he can trust me. I have learned that Jesus, Jesus can always be trusted. And when you talk about trust, that calls to mind what we call the doctrine of Christian assurance. John Wesley made much of this. And he, he gave this testimony after his evangelical conversion. He'd been in ministry a long time, had this marvelous conversion, which really opened the doors to this marvelous ministry God gave him in the beginning of the Methodist Church. But this is the way he described what happened to me. He said, the witness of the Spirit is an inward impression on the soul whereby the Spirit of God directly witnesses to my spirit that I am a child of God, that Jesus has loved me and given himself for me and that all of my sins are blotted out and I, even I, am reconciled to God. That's the witness of the Spirit, giving assurance that I am indeed in a new relationship now as a saved person. I am a child of God. Well, this witness of the Spirit kind of thing, you know, where you know for sure anything, it's like, as I said this morning, the ebb and flow of the tides in the ocean. Comes roaring in, boy, that's great. I love the witness of the Spirit. Marvelous when the Spirit of God is witnessing with my spirit that I am indeed walking in all the light and he's filling me with the Spirit. 
That's a marvelous thing. But when the Spirit is out, and I'm not aware of that, what do I have to rely upon? How can I know for sure? How about this book? This is the written Word of God. And it's entirely reliable because it is His trustworthy Word to us. Jesus is the living Word. This is the written Word. And it's God's Word for you and me. So, you can anchor the relationship to Jesus through the written word. These lines have been attributed to Martin Luther. Feelings come and feelings go, and feelings are deceiving. My warrant or my authority is the word of God. Naught else is worth believing. Though all my soul should feel condemned for lack of some sweet token, I know one greater than my heart whose word cannot be broken. So when the witness is out, I can lean on the truth of this word, knowing that I'm walking in the light, and by faith know God is still doing this marvelous work within me. Well, clock keeps moving. Living in relationship with Jesus is so important to him because we are his agents in the world. One of the great Old Testament scholars said, God reveals himself to this world in only one way, humanness, through people like you and me. That's the way God reveals himself to those people in your neighborhood, in your community, at your job, wherever you go. That's the way God intends his message to get out. Now, I have a perception that in the distant past, we holiness people lived in great fear that we were going to be seduced by a godless culture that's rife with ominous and overpowering evil that, that we cannot resist. It's just so powerful. So we, we've withdrawn, we've secluded ourselves in our little subcultures, if you will, and developed almost a fortress mentality, self-protection. Wrong. Wrong. That's not the way God intended it all. We're not the seduced. We're the seducers. We're to go out into the world as light and life and love. We're to image God, the one that's revealed to us in Jesus Christ, and live Christ-like. Can you live Christ-like? Can I live Christ-like? No not in love myself. William Temple, who was Archbishop of Canterbury for many years, which made him kind of the, the, the head of the, the Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church here in, in America, once said, if you were to tell me to write a play like Shakespeare, I would tell you there's no way. And if you, you were to ask me to live a life like that of Jesus Christ, I would tell you there's no way. He could live that way. I cannot. But, he said, if the Spirit of Jesus could come and live in my heart, then my heart and my life, then I, I could live like Jesus Christ. That's the secret. Spirit of God indwelling us, living within our hearts, and we can go living like Christ. So how do we do that? Well, we seduce the world, as I get it, by walking right into a godless, secular culture and living like Jesus Christ. 
That's the way we do it. That's God's plan. Nothing more beautiful than a person living like Jesus. Nothing more attractive or compelling to those who look upon us. So what do Jesus' people do? They go about doing good, as, as Luke wrote about Jesus in, in the Acts of the Apostles. They give food to the hungry, clothe the naked, offer drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, visit the sick, go out into the prisons, forgive 70 times 7. They love their neighbors as they love themselves, and they love their enemies too. Their word is as good as an oath. When compelled to go one mile, they'll go two. They're not intent on hoarding for themselves great material possessions. They work for justice. They don't criticize others. They pray for the good. They play the role of the servant. And they are God's servants and agents of reconciliation. And on their lips always are the wonderful words of God's reconciliation and forgiveness offered through his one and only son, Jesus. That's who we are. That's what holiness is all about. So God intends us to live in vital personal relationship with him and to live like Jesus Christ in this world around us. Ron Sider, great uh, writer, Christian sociologist, said, what would it take to change this world, to really change it for the better? The answer is simple. It would take just a tiny fraction of today's Christians to truly believe what Jesus taught and to live like Jesus lived. That's holiness. Holiness on display. I love the way Sider wrote at the end of a wonderful book he'd written, Living Like Jesus. For many years, he says, I prayed regularly for the spirit-filled gift of working biblically for justice and peace. Then a few years ago, I incorporated, I incorporated that request in a much broader prayer. I began to ask God regularly for spirit-filled gifts of combining evangelism and social transformation. Today, I just pray to become more like Jesus and to learn how in the power of the Spirit to help the church become more like him. And that's me. That's my passion. I resonate with that. That's the holiness I believe in and wish we could proclaim loudly, holiness is just living like Jesus through the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit, who is indeed the Spirit of Jesus himself. <laughs> well, the last thing I just mentioned is that this relationship is forever. To me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Gain, what does that mean? Well, it means eternal life. It means reunions. <laughs> it means new heavens, new earth, new body. And best of all, it means Jesus. Jesus. 
For to me to live is Christ, here and now, but an ever-deepening measure beyond my finite capabilities to even conceive. Jesus will be my life throughout all eternity. What a thought. Just think of stepping on shore. Stepping on shore. And finding it heaven. Touching a hand, finding it God's. Breathing new air and finding it celestial. Of waking up in glory finding it home, home forever in the presence of the God of all love and grace made known to us and his one and only son, Jesus Christ. So that's the holiness in which I believe and about which I'm deeply convicted. It's all about Jesus, the one from whom I've come, the one to whom one day, maybe soon, I'll go, and the one who is a vital living presence in my life this very moment. Praise his wonderful name. Thank you. It's been great to be here today and to help you. And now the pastor has got about three or four Sundays to correct everything I told you this morning. <laughs> That's a big step for you.